This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Father, as we, as we open up your scriptures this morning, uh, would you reveal to us Jesus? Would you point us to him? We, we're convinced, Lord, if we see Jesus, we'll, we'll be changed. So, Father, show us your son's spirit. Point out the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to us today, please. May you speak and breathe life through your living word. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. As a father, I've encountered a number of questions from my kids that I just don't have good answers to. You may, you may have been in that same situation as a, as a parent, if you've been a parent or a parent, that you, your kids ask you some questions and you're like, don't know where that came from, don't have a good answer, maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am, and they constantly remind us that we aren't, that we aren't. But I read a, an article, and it was an interaction between a mom and her son, and the interaction went like this. Mom, what's in your stomach? She says, a baby. And her son asks a really logical question. Mom, well, do you, do you love him? And the mom answers, yes, son, I, I love the baby in my tummy more than you will ever possibly know. And the kid looks back at his mom and responds, if you love the baby so much, then why'd you eat him? A number of questions like this come up every single day in my household. Not that my wife's pregnant, praise be to God. But um, a number of questions come up in my household every single day. And I don't have really the capacity to answer a lot of them. And I started wondering what my questions sound like to God. I started asking what my questions sound like to God. Because I don't know if you're anything like me, you've got a list of questions. Right, that you would love to ask God. And we sort of view heaven like that, don't we? Where we're going to get into these pearly gates and then we're going to say to God, Hey, God, could I get five minutes with you? Just five. Maybe we can sit down, grab a cup of really delicious French press coffee. Can we sit down and, and let me start running through the questions that I have for you, God. And I think we think that God is going to have answers to all of our questions because, well, he's God. Well, I started to lay that view over scripture because I don't know about you, but, but I, I do. I have a lot of questions. I have some questions about sickness and death. I have some questions about why it seems like evil has a really good foothold when King Jesus declares that he's still on the throne. You ever wondered that? You ever wondered that? Like, like God, why did why the job go the way it did? Why did the marriage go the way it did? Why did the fam? Why is the family turning out the way that it was? Because I could have sworn your word says you're on the throne. And so I have these questions. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask them to God. But do you know what? Sometimes God doesn't answer your questions. Even in the even in even in heaven, He might not answer. Look at this passage with me. Um, Revelation chapter 6. And and we're going to get to Acts chapter 12. But I'd like to start here because I think it gives us some good context for where we're going to go. Throne room of heaven. That's the scene. Throne room of heaven. uh, Revelation chapter 6 starting in verse 9. 
It says, and when he, the he here is, is God, opened the fifth seal, I, this is John writing, saw under the altar souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, so these are people who were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Just so that you're aware, um, that, that is about 400 people per day right now. Okay? 400 people per day will lose their life because of their faith in and witness for the name and sake of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is a beloved group of people who are in the throne room of God, and they cried out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Great question, isn't it? God, it seems like you're not doing a whole lot. God, it seems like we, we died in vain, and, and yes, you've redeemed us and you've saved us, but, but God, it sure would be nice if down there on earth you showed yourself as powerful as you are up here. Holy, faithful, and true God. Great theology that they have. And they're just going, it just doesn't look like down there it's true. You ever been there? God, how long? How long are we going to wait? How long until you show up? How long until fill in the blank? And, and here's, what, here's what we love to do in church. We love to simplify things. And we love to say, hey, the reason that God doesn't show up is fill in the blank. Or the reason that God doesn't do what we want him to do is, is, is because we don't have enough faith. The reason that God doesn't play that game, play that game with God, we love to simplify it and either put it back on ourselves or accuse God of not being all powerful or all loving or all good. Listen to the way that he responds. They cried out in a loud voice, sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? There's a quick time out. Isn't it interesting that people in heaven, one, retain their identity that they had on earth. Two, can see what's going on on earth. Three, can interact with God and ask God questions. They have some sort of connection with God that allows them to go, what's the deal here? Here's how he responds. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Here's how God answers. You're redeemed. You're righteous. I've purchased you with my own blood. I've saved you. Chill out. Settle down. Rest. Rest. Um, it's, it's as though that should be enough. A little longer until the number of your fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So, so hey, wait, rest. I'm clothing you in, a right, in, in my righteousness. You stand before me, pure, holy, spotless, blameless. Rest until more people meet their maker because of their faith in Jesus and are martyred just like you. What? Like, I thought God was going to be the, the cosmic divine answer man when we get to heaven. 
I thought he was just going to be, we could like have a cup of coffee and ask him like, I don't get why you didn't heal in that situation. And I don't get why it felt like you didn't come through. And I don't get why I'd lost a job. And I don't get why the family fell apart. And if we could just sit down and maybe you could unpack for me your divine sovereign plan, well, then that would be wonderful. And that would be great, wouldn't it? (laughs) And sometimes the Bible gives us more questions than answers. Sometimes his answer is, I'm clothing you in my righteousness, rest. It's enough. I say that all as we lead into this passage of scripture today in the book of Acts. I think in many ways, this passage of scripture is the epitome of what Madeline Langle wrote, uh, the great author. And she said this, she said, those who believe, they believe in God. So people who, who think they believe in God, but do so without passion in the heart without anguish in the mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. So my guess is right now you're going, Paulson, this isn't going to be like a feel-good message, is it? Here's, here's my goal. My goal is not necessarily to give a feel-good message. My goal is to, to teach the scriptures as honestly and as accurately as I can. And can, can I be honest with you today? This is a passage that has more questions than it does answers. And I think what God would invite us to do is say, will you trust me enough to go there with me? Today, I want to talk about the story, part of the story of the early church. And it's a story, at least if we read it in its entirety, and the whole pericope of thought that Dr. Luke wants to communicate in the narrative, history, theological um, beginnings of of this church, I think it has a lot of questions for us. Ones that we like to sort of gloss over and give hallmark answers for. But my goal is to invite you to something a little bit deeper today. If you've been with us over the course of our study of the book of Acts, you'll remember that the book of Acts is the movement of Jesus through his church. That the church is birthed as Jesus conquers death and walks out of the grave, gives his church the Holy Spirit. It binds them together in unity and community and then launches them as Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that, that God will give his followers the Holy Spirit. He will empower them and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that's where we find ourselves. The gospel is starting to just break out and break forth. But what you see if you read the story of the early church is this pendulum that swings between flourishing and life and joy and persecution. And it's as though God uses both to launch his church into the future that he has for them. Acts chapter 12, it's where we're going to jump in today. And we're going to wrestle with this God who sometimes leaves questions unanswered. About that time, Herod, the king, now this is Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great, who built many of the structures there. That's why he was called the Great. He's also the grandson of Herod the Great, who killed many of the newborns after Jesus was born. He was afraid that he was going to get dethroned as king. Um, Ironically, he did. Now, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, this is James, who Jesus loved. 
This is James, who was one of the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus for three years, who lived with him, laughed with him, ate with him. They were together. This is James, who Jesus knew, and affectionately, um, he was called one of the sons of thunder. And Herod captures him, puts his head on a platter, cuts it off. And he arrests Peter. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when they'd seized him, they put him in prison, him being Peter, and delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on the very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So, so what, what Luke intends to paint the picture of is he's definitely locked up. He's not going anywhere. He is watched very well. And behold, verse 7, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Now this is great because the Greek word used here is like a blunt, forceful hit. Now, the angel didn't whisper down to him, and like my dad used to wake me up on Sunday morning, sing, rise and shine and give God the glory, right? None of that. Angels are like, no, we don't play games. We got to go, bop, wake up, come on. Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. The angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. This is brilliant. This is great. And when they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. This is the original garage door opener. And they went out and went along the street and immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself. He sort of woke up and said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people. What, was, what they were expecting, verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where there were many gathered and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported Peter's standing at the gate. It's a great way to get fired if you're a servant girl. Okay? And they said to her, you're out of your mind. Now, and we're going to come back to this in just a moment. But isn't it interesting? What had they been fervently praying for? That Peter would be released. And they're absolutely shocked that God answers their prayer. Why? Well, well, maybe because he didn't answer the prayer when they prayed it for James. Ran back in, but she kept insisting. It's his, but they kept insisting it's his angel. Verse 16. But Peter continued to knock. I love it. He's like, I'm not leaving. It's Peter. Peter who? The apostle Peter. Oh, really? Okay. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James, to the brothers. And he departed and he went to another place. You know, it would be really tempting 
is as a pastor, as a preacher, as somebody who, who really deeply loves you and uh, longs for you to hope in Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to have confidence in Jesus, and to have faith in Jesus. You know what would be really easy is to jump into preaching this passage in verse 6. Maybe even verse 5. The church fervently prays and God answers that prayer exactly how they pray it. You know what's hard though? Real life. What's difficult is that sometimes our story looks like Peter's. And we miraculously, by the grace and sovereignty and power of God, walk out of whatever that situation is that we'd like to corner God when we get to heaven and say, I've got a question for you. Why didn't the job turn out the way it did? Why didn't the family turn out the way it did? Why didn't you fill in the blank turn out the way it did? And why was hurt and sorrow and pain prevalent in my life? We'd love to have that story where God says, I will take you out of that. And sometimes we get that story. Praise be to God. Sometimes we get the story of James, where we pray, where we have faith, where we're loved by Jesus, and for whatever reason he chooses, he doesn't come through for us in the way that we hope that he will or think that he should. So here's my question for us this morning. And I'm going to say it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, and it almost doesn't feel right to come out there, but I want you to, to sort of wrestle with it with me. How do we live lives of faith when God seems so inconsistent? And I know you go, well, Paulson, that's that's wrong. God God is consistent, and he does act the way that he should at all points in time. And I just want to bring before you both James and Peter. And to say, sometimes doesn't it feel like He comes through, and sometimes it feels like he doesn't. So let me ask it another way. What does faith look like in real life? What does it look like to live a life of faith in real life when circumstances maybe don't go the way that we hope they would, when certainty seems like it's just um, slipping through our hands, and when control is just off the table completely? What does it look like to have faith then? Because I think this passage answers some of our questions. I think it asks some too, but I think it answers a lot of our questions. They're just not the answers that we want. Because the answer isn't, hey, if you do X, then God will automatically do Y, and it will pop out Z, what you're praying for and what you're hoping for. That's just not what the scriptures teach. So let me invite you into what they do teach because I think it's beautiful and I think it's life-giving and I think it's good. And I think those who start with the perspective that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords um, paid for every single one of my sins on the cross of Calvary and gave me his righteousness and is worthy to be trusted and hoped in. If we start there, I think we're able to navigate this life of faith. But, but the reality is this, friends, is that faith is not the absence of doubt but it's the presence of trust amidst uncertainty. Let me say that again for you. Faith is not the absence of doubt, 
But the presence of trust, the presence of a relational covenantal conviction that Jesus is Lord. Even when life sometimes doesn't feel like it, doesn't look like it, and doesn't turn out the way we think it should if he really is on the throne. Have you been there? Been there? I mean, this is faith in real life. And let me show you how the early church navigates faith in real life because I think it's beautiful and I think it's life-giving and my hope is that it'll speak to us this morning. Here's what they do. Verse five. Verse five. So Peter was kept in prison. Now he's kept in there up until the feast is over. And at that point, they think he's going to come out and he is going to meet the same end that James did. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The Greek word here used for, for prayer is this like this fervent pleading with God come through, come through. We love to make prayer into an equation, don't we? We love to make prayer into, hey, if we say the right thing, then God will do what we want him to. And, And I love this reality that prayer for the early church is this invitation from God to press against being fatalistic and just throwing their hands up in the air and going, well, well, if James died, then I'm sure Peter will too. But it's this invitation from God to press into and against being fatalistic and to say, even though God didn't come through the way that we hoped it would, he would then. It doesn't mean that he's a God who does not answer prayer. And so as we seek to walk with God in faith in real life, and what I mean by that is um, a, a faith that's not about an equation, but more about a relationship. Here's what we see. Here's what we see the early church doing. They persist in prayer. They persist in prayer. How easy would it have been for them to just say, hey, God didn't do what we wanted him to in the life of James, and he's probably not going to in the life of Peter either, and so we're out. But he answers their prayer. I started to ask myself this question. What what might my life look like If God answered all my prayers, what would change? Um, Let's let me get a little less egocentric. What would my neighborhood look like if God answered all my prayers? What types of situations globally would change if God answered all my prayers? If, if God answered my prayers with, with the situation with, with worldwide slavery, specifically of young children, about 27 million people in slavery still today, would it, would it change at all if God answered all my prayers? 400 people are going to be martyred today. Would it, would it change at all if God answered all my prayers? How might the situation in the Middle East with ISIS continuing to take more ground? What, what would change if God answered all my prayers? And God doesn't answer them all yes. He doesn't. But will you look up at me? He answers some of them yes. He answered this church. They were so shocked that he answered yes that they kept Peter out in the dark for a while. If God answered all your prayers, what might... How might your life look different? Um, I love the way 
that Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. Um, he says this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord. This, he's talking about this thorn in his flesh, and, and I don't want to get into a debate about what that is or what that isn't, but it's something that he longed for God to take away. And he says, Three times I pleaded with you. Now, now these are, how does he know three times? Well, because this isn't just the passing, Hey God, if you could take that thorn away, that'd be awesome, Right? These are three times of extended pleading and pounding on the throne room of heaven. God, move. God, do something. God, show up. And here's God's answer to him. Paul, no. But. And anytime God answers no, there's always a but. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul, rejoice all the more in your weakness, because through your weakness I'm made strong. It's his answer. It's his answer. Plead. Pray. Repeat and then receive. God, what do you have for me? Where are you in this? Verses seven and eight, we continue. So, so if we're going to be the type of people that have a faith that goes beyond just equations, if we, if we pray this and God does this, but, but really a relationship with a living, breathing, holy, perfect God, one, persistent prayer, two, Verses 7 and 8 read like this. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he bopped Peter on the side of the head, and he woke him up, and he said, Get up quickly. Now, can Peter do that? Yep, he can. Get up quickly. And Peter does it. And the chains fell off his hands. Can, can Peter do that? Can Peter make the chains fall off? No. So so here's the pattern. Here's what God asks his followers to do. You do what you can do and I'll do what only I can do. So get up quickly and the chains fell off. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. You don't want to be going running out of here naked, Peter. And he said, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Here's what we see. Not only does God, in seasons of, of doubt and seasons of darkness and seasons of questions where we wonder, God, are you coming through for me in this instance? Not only are we called to persist in prayer, but we're called to follow in obedience. My daughter, Avery, um, and my wife were at Target shopping the other day. And Avery was, was begging, hey, mom, can we, can we just get a little toy? Can we get one toy? If you're a parent and you've taken little ones to Target, you know this drill. And she said, my, my wife said, no. And she said, well, what about just something from the dollar bin? Here's what you do with stuff from the dollar bin. You take it from the dollar bin in Target. You pay your dollar seven to the, to the clerk. And then you take it home and you dump it right in the trash. Because that's what it is. It's garbage, right? So can I get and, and Kelly says, no, no. And she kept asking. And Kelly kept saying, no. And Avery stopped in the middle of Target in the aisle. And she said, if you don't buy me something, I'm going to destroy this place. Four-year-old, cutest little girl you've ever seen, blonde little curls, big blue eyes. I'm going to destroy this place. We're like, we need like an exorcism over this girl, right? Like, but I started to think, man, how many times is my response to God really similar? Hey, God, if you don't come through for me in this way, then there's no way I'm following you. And God, if you don't do exactly what I hope you will, then I'm not doing, because here's what's in my control whether or not I obey. And if you don't do your, your part, I'm not going to do mine. 
And I don't know about you, but for me, the times where I'm most susceptible to temptation are when I'm most disappointed with God. The times where sin starts to look a little bit better are the times where I go to God and, God, why didn't you come through for me like that? God, why didn't you heal? God, why didn't you show up? I firmly believe that you're capable and that's what's hardest. My guess is that maybe it's the same way for you. That it's, that's easier to have a few more drinks than you know you should when you look at God and go, God, I just don't get it. That it's easiest to go to those places on your computer that you know you shouldn't go to when, you, when you're looking at God and going, God, why? why? I don't get it. That it's easiest to lash out at your family and in the back of your mind justify it because, well, hey, if God didn't come through for me, then I'm not coming through for him. I can assure you, friend, the only person you're hurting is you. And I think what we see in the life of Peter is this willingness to be obedient even when he's in prison. And for all he knows, he's going to end up exactly like James. So how do we walk with Jesus in a way Believing that the Bible isn't like just this like formula for success, like if we plug in all the right parts of the equation, then it'll pop out the right thing. That it's not a formula for success, but it's an invitation. It's a, it's a pathway to perseverance. It's a way to trust this God who gave us all for you, even when it feels like life is falling apart. So we persist in prayer. We follow in obedience. And then Verse 16 and 17, they read like this. Peter continued knocking. I love the persistence of Peter. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. They were amazed that God answered their prayer. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who is one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem now. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then... He departed and went to another place. So Peter knocking, they come, they look, it's Peter. And they shut him out, right? And he's like, hey, 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 it's me. And they answer the door, Peter, we're so happy. And he's, this is his response. Shh, I'm a fugitive on the run. Like, I'm Harrison Ford in your midst, running for my life. What are you thinking? Right? So, so here's what Peter doesn't do. Peter doesn't start to assume, God, because you rescued me from that situation, you're going to rescue me from every situation. Right? Peter doesn't start to parade through the streets and go, well, hey, I was in jail once and I got out and hey, I'm probably going to get out again. What does he do? No, he starts to operate in wisdom. He says, be quiet, contact James, and get me the heck out of here. See, that's what people who trust Jesus in the midst of uncertain times do. They not only persist in prayer, they not only follow in obedience, but they, they proceed in wisdom. I love that Peter doesn't check his brain at the door. Love it. See, faith does not mean that we operate completely contrary to logic at every time. The opposite of faith is not stupidity. You can say it like that. 
Faith demands that we engage with God, that we follow God, that we listen to God, that we press into him. And sometimes faith means keep, or sometimes wisdom means keeping our mouth shut, and sometimes it means speaking up. And sometimes faith or wisdom means staying, and sometimes wisdom means leaving. But all the time wisdom means, God, we're going to submit our lives under your lordship and under your rule and ask you, what do you have for me in this situation? See, wisdom, the, faith, the life of faith and the life of wisdom does not mean we stay when things are abusive. It, it doesn't mean when, that we just hunker down and try to pull up our bootstraps when the addiction seems to be getting the better of us. Sometimes the life of faith and wisdom is putting up the white flag and saying, hey, hey, Lord, I need some help here. I need some help here. That's what Peter does. He shows up and he says, all right, one, be quiet. Two, tell James. Three, help me get the heck out. I wonder where God might be pressing on us, pressing on you to say, all right, Lord, what does it look like to live a life of wisdom in the situation that I find myself in? Finally, Because I'm running out of time. Let me summarize. We have this really strange ending to this story. So the story starts off with James, disciple of Jesus, friend of many of the early followers of Christ, dying by the way of the sword by Herod. Story number two, Peter miraculously released from prison. God, quote unquote, comes through. Story number three. Herod goes down to give a political speech, trying to gather up support and he falls over dead. Look at it with me. Starting in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Um, Josephus is going to do a great job of, of recording this history in another place. Uh, I think so that we would know it's absolutely true. It was a, a silver robe, he says. And he took a seat on his throne and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God! Not of a man. This is what they're saying about Herod's words. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. And he did, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms. And he breathed his last. Okay, so, so James is killed by Herod. Peter is released from Herod. And then God strikes him dead. What are we supposed to make of that? How do, we, how do we read that into this narrative that God is brilliantly weaving together? Hey, here's what I think Luke would have us believe. Here's what I think the Spirit would press on us to believe. And here's what I think our hearts need to know. Is that even when it feels like and seems like God isn't going to show up. And maybe he doesn't in the way that we hoped that he would. One, to continue to pray, to continue to walk in obedience, to proceed in wisdom, and then to trust, to trust that ultimately God is sovereign. Now, eyes up at me for just a second. When I say the word sovereign, I do not mean that God is the proverbial puppet master pulling every single little tiny string, that he was the one that made Herod kill James. I'm not saying that. Here's what I mean by the fact that God is sovereign. It means that he is completely free and in authority to act in whatever way he wants. 
And he does so in every situation. And sometimes, sometimes, and people throughout the scriptures are going to wrestle with this. God, it seems like the evil people get the upper hand. And then God, it seems like sometimes he comes through. Why is that? David wrestles with that same thing. In Psalm chapter 73, he cries out, God, where are you? I mean, my enemies are pressing in on me, and it just seems like you're just up there having a great time in heaven, but, but where are you? And David sort of eventually comes to his senses, and he says, I was like a, a brute beast before you. I was crazy. I was like foaming at the mouth, mad. And when he comes to his senses, here's what he declares to be true about God. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And you hold my right hand. Does that sound a little similar to Revelation chapter 6? It's not an answer. It's a presence. It's a relationship. And he goes, all right, God, maybe you're not coming through for me. But here's, here's what I know. I know you're holding my hand and you, you guide me with your counsel. And here's his hope. Afterwards, whenever this life is over, you will receive me to your glory. That's what I'm confident of that Jesus paid it all, that he walked out of the grave, that he's worthy of our trust. And faith isn't this equation, friends, where if we have enough of it, then Jesus does exactly what we want. Faith isn't an invitation to walk with God through the circumstances of life that make sense and go the way we think they should and the circumstances that don't. See, it's not. Faith isn't the presence of certainty, but it's the presence of trust. Amidst situations in life that maybe go the way that we want and sometimes go the way that we don't. But we're confident of this. Jesus, you've come to my rescue already. On the cross of Calvary, you came to my rescue. And therefore, I'll walk with you whatever life may hold. Lord, Lord, help us persist in prayer. Because you answer prayer. Help us walk in obedience. Help us proceed with wisdom. And Jesus, convict us when we don't trust in your sovereign hand and push us back to the fact that you are on the throne. See, here's a reality, friends. I think a lot of times we'd like to look at the scriptures and go, it's this like great divine equation where when we plug in the right variables, God outputs the things that we want. The only problem with that is, well, well, real life And we all know that on some level, it's not true. See, the scriptures, they don't give us this formula for success. What they invite us to is this pathway to persevere, to trust, and to walk with a God that says, when it's all over, I'm going to clothe you with a white robe. And invite you into my presence. And I'll declare again. Not that I'll answer all your questions. But that I'll say rest. I've come to your rescue. And I'm enough for you. Would you pray with me? So I don't know where where you find yourself this morning. If you're in a season of life where you have a lot of questions for God. Would you just pray with me 
the simple prayer, Jesus, help me see you in this. Jesus, help me trust you in this. Jesus, help me persist in prayer. Help me walk in obedience. Help me proceed in wisdom. And help me trust that you, sovereign God, are able to act exactly as you want and will in any situation. Father, may you expand our faith far beyond trite hallmark equations. May you invite us into relationship with the living, breathing, holy, perfect God who is here. Thank you for the fact that you've come to our rescue, that you've redeemed, that you've saved. May that be enough for us to sink our anchor into this morning. And continue to follow hard after you. It's in your name, King Jesus, that we pray. Amen and amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.